It's time to rethink everything, to redo the rule book, to explore smarter ways to work and rediscover what's possible. It's time for a fresh take on how technology and creativity are changing the way work gets done. I'm Barry Ross, and this is The Big Rethink. Today's episode focuses on the link between innovation, STEM education, collaboration, and a well-known NASA astronaut. Our guest, Charlie Camarda, former NASA astronaut and president of Leading Edge Enterprises. Charlie, welcome to the show. Great being here, Barry. Thank you for having me. Charlie, let's just get to it because I think you have a really interesting background. Uh, And so for our our listeners, let's talk about how you have a BS and PhD in aerospace engineering and an MS in mechanical engineering. You worked for NASA for 45 years in various positions, starting off as an astronaut, then director of engineering, then deputy director of advanced projects, then senior advisor for innovation. Two questions. Is it safe to say you always knew you literally wanted to be a rocket scientist and why? Pretty much, uh, Barry, I say this, and and, uh, believe it or not, a lot of astronauts say this, I wanted to be an astronaut at a very young age uh, because it was at a time when it was the race to to space, to the moon. Sputnik was happening when I was very young. And uh, my heroes were those seven Mercury 7 astronauts, you know, in their silver suits. It was us against the Russians, unfortunately. We seem to be coming back, circling back to that same place. Um, and so uh, that was where my passion was and uh, eventually I was always leaning towards science and and understanding what's unknown and constantly asking questions and so science and, and math and and engineering were in my future and um, so that's how I ended up along that path and when I graduated from Polytechnic Institute of Brooklyn I, it was in aerospace engineering. Wow. I was lucky enough to get land my first job at a research center, NASA Langley Research Center. And so before I became an astronaut, I got to do research for 22 years. That's incredible. That's incredible. We talked about having a background in STEM. What impacts did your STEM education have on your 45-year career at NASA? Well, you know, it kept me sane. It kept me very <laughs> happy. Uh, because I was always that way, even as a young child, very inquisitive, trying things, failing, and uh, and learning. It was very important to me. A very early reader, loved absorbing everything I possibly can get my hands on. And, and so being in research, when you think about it, it was, a, a, un, it was just like I never had a job. It, it was, I was having fun my entire life. Wow. And so tell us about what is this Epic Education Foundation? Okay, so I got into education because as, as you told the audience, I flew right after the Columbia accident. And so growing up as a researcher, it was totally different culture than the culture at the space centers and at the, especially the Human Space Flight Center. And so after the accident, what I saw, the behaviors I saw and the decisions, the bad decisions that were made by intelligent engineers and, and competent program managers, I just couldn't understand that. I couldn't understand why that was so. 
And so um, I, beginning to, I began to dive into why these problems were happening. Uh, was it, uh, why were our engineers not using their God-given creativity to imagine what would happen if this large piece of foam hit the vehicle, number one? And number two, why were they not able to come up with the tools to, to predict what would happen? Because this is what we did at the research centers. And so going down that path of first developing a methodology to teach engineers, young NASA engineers, junior engineers, how to think and solve problems the way we did as researchers, I ventured into another major epic challenge within the epic challenge, and that was the education system. And so the thing I realized was we're losing kids from this STEM pipeline. And so I call it a leaky STEM pipeline. We lose about 80% of them by seventh grade. We lose the rest, like 95%, by sophomore year in college. And so I had this vision that the things that inspired me to suffer through all those hard courses in graduate school and undergraduate school was that passion to be an astronaut, that solving that epic challenge, going to space, living in space. And I thought about gaming and why kids are sucked into gaming and get addicted to gaming. And it's exactly the same reason that got me motivated and, and psyched up about going into engineering. We have these amazing challenges. So the Epic Challenge program is all about bringing these epic challenges to kids of all ages and watching them experience the joy of their own creativity to solve problems that NASA can't solve. And so let's focus a little bit more on that because on the foundation's vision states it wants to radically increase the number, rate, and quality of students entering the workforce seeking STEM-related careers. So how would you do that? We talked a little bit about it, but how would you specifically do it? What are the tactics behind that? The, the way we're doing it in the foundation, the Epic Education Foundation, and my vision for how to do that is to connect all the different levels of education. Right. We, you start at the very top with this epic challenge. You work with schools, graduate students, undergraduate students, high school students, all the way down to preschool. And you basically formulate this problem and allow students at all those different levels, teach them how to work together in teams, teach them how to solve these problems. And what you end up having is this flow of creative ideas from the bottom up. Right. Just like. Sir Ken Robinson uh, said, you know, we lose creativity as we get older. And you have this continuum of mentorship from the top down. And the things that we want to do is we want to constantly be pulling these kids, attracting these kids. And what better way than for them to see peers and near peers just a little bit older than them explaining to them the fun of science and what tools, what do they need to learn next in order to, to solve some of these these problems that are of interest to them, right? Yeah, yeah. And I love the fact that you mentioned mentorship because that's a huge, huge plus where I come from. And it's interesting because on, on LinkedIn, you write, you develop the tools that enable digital transformation of learning and revolutionize how we solve problems. What are those tools? Well, I wish I wish I had all the money I needed to actually create those tools, but we've been experimenting with these different types of platforms, 
right? When you think about it, the way kids collaborate in school, when when I went and was teaching at, at NYU, as I was still working for NASA, I did a detail at NYU. They were oh, wow. using, um, oh, geez, what was the name of that that tool that they were using? Um, the online digital tool that they were using for students to collaborate. Oh, it wasn't okay. Canvas. Descri- describe it. Describe it. it was, oh, actually, it I know wasn't, it wasn't Canvas. It was something else that teachers use to get the grades and everything, yada, yada, It's like an LMS, a learning management system of some sort. It was a learning management system, but it was very, very not not conducive for collaboration, right? And so we learned that that wasn't working. And so while I was there, I was experimenting with an entrepreneur at that time who's now um, developed the platform. For, for students, as they're working these problems, because we want them to work together on teams, how can we co- collect the information of how these students are sharing learning? And, and so we started to get some research. We started to conduct some research. We started to look at the data until finally our last attempt at this was using a learning management, uh, learning experience platform called Valimus working with my uh, good friends at Boeing, my chief learning scientist there, Michael Ritchie. They have a wonderful program called Aeropace, which was a, is a capstone program where, where students from multiple different universities work together on teams and virtually solve problems. And so what you want to be able to have in this platform, you want to be able to have an engaging online learning experience where students can access the videos, they could, they can access their assignments, they could also collaborate and share information and reach out to other subject matter experts to help them on this journey of learning. At the same time, we are able to look at and evaluate and analyze what is effective or how are these teams performing? Are we creating the right environment and culture so that they um, they can optimize their performance, and um, and so I I think that's where we want to go, and hopefully if we can get enough money in the foundation, <laughs> we could build the platform to do this. But this same platform, Barry, is the same platform I would want to digitally transform how businesses do do the work they do, and that's what we're talking about with NASA. And with folks like at Boeing, yeah. And so you keep bringing up uh, collaboration as a, a you know a great uh, you know term that people use all the time. But but then I also saw a word that you used uh, quite a bit. I think it was on your website. What is collaboratory? What is a collaboratory? Collaboratory like, yeah. is that platform. Right? Oh, it is. It's a, oh. it's a borderless. It's a borderless environment. So people around the world to, can connect. They can connect with other subject matter experts that they need to bring into a team that they need to develop. They can access information. They can share that information. They can share the modeling and simulation tools that they used in order to analyze um, and understand what they're trying to design or a problem they're trying to solve. And so it's it, it's a ma- Imagine when uh, I got that idea from, you know, we, we were, I had to go into my friend's garage, my a good astronaut buddy of mine, Don Pettit, and I talk about this in several podcasts about the stories we did creating things that NASA couldn't imagine in mm. his garage that I flew in space after the Columbia accident oh, wow. to repair the vehicle in case we got, uh, we had a debris hit. And 
Imagine opening up a Don Pettit's garage where we have hundreds of thousands of students that can basically interact, share information, um, uh, conduct parallel experiments, share ideas, and learn as quickly as possible. I love it. I think that's great. That's a great concept. So, Charlie, I listened to a previous podcast interview about the root cause of the Columbia shuttle disaster, and you described the program's interdepartmental problem of groupthink versus diverse thinking in successful collaboration. What did you mean by that? It's, um, you know, there were several causes for that accident. And what was amazing was uh, because of the good work of Diane Vaughn, who wrote the Challenger Launch Decision, a, a well-known sociologist, it was the first time in history of an accident where culture was the primary cause of the accident. Wow. And so as I studied accidents, I dove into this the, the behavioral science, organizational psychology, cognitive science, as wow. to what made these people make these decisions. And so the book I'm putting together right now is that I really believe a lot of these accident investigations, these accident uh, analyses, they're missing a key component. And what I see is that the failure of Marshall Space Flight Center for the shuttle O-ring ring problem mm -hmm. and Johnson Space Flight Center during the Columbia accident was that we did not have researchers analyzing this problem. And so what, what, the, what the sociologists and psychologists failed to see was that research and the research engineer was a separate, distinct culture. And the way they solve problems, the way they group together to solve problems, the environment they create, and how they work on these highly coupled problems. Because in both of those cases, the teams that were in charge of those particular anomalies, the O-ring team mm -hmm. and the, um, and the uh, shuttle subsystem problem resolution team, leading edge problem resolution team, totally missed the ball. Their analyses were... Um, not adequate at all by any mm. means. And they did not reach out to the researchers in their own organization that would understand the problem and could have helped them solve the problem. And so a lot of what I'm talking about with this transformation of how we learn and how we solve problems is creating this, this network of networks of key people around the world, linking the right subject matter experts and researchers with the engineers and operations, operational program managers that are trying to solve this problem and get them to collaborate in an open, psychologically safe way that they're allowed to have mm. aggressive dissent. And, and, they, and, and that's basically how we solve some of the problems. I put together teams after the accident that the people at Johnson Space Flight Center did not want me to put together. They told wow. me- that we didn't, they didn't need me to do this. And it turned out we ended up solving problems that they couldn't solve. And a big part of that is also empowering the employees to speak up. Is that correct? Making sure you support that voice. A absolutely correct. So it's nice to say psychologically safe environment, but when you have multiple layers in that hierarchy, right? Even though it's coming from the very top, we want to be psychologically safe. Don't squelch the vent, mm. uh, dissent. Do not silence any voices out there. And matter of fact, encourage dissent. All it takes is one team in those hundreds of teams to be dysfunctional, either mm. uh, psych, um, behaviorally dysfunctional 
or it's the not the right team to technically solve the problem because you have hundreds of these teams, just like the leading edge subsystem problem resolution team, the LESSPRT or the O-ring team, right? How do yeah. you how do you determine they're having a problem? How are you determining they're making decisions and they don't have the right people involved in understanding the physics of the problem? And this is where I think we're at a point in technology where technology can help us monitor the conversations, um, analyze, develop algorithms to determine which teams are not psychologically safe, which teams are making decisions without the right uh, content of of um, makeup of the teams and things like that. So um, I think we're at a point where uh, something needs to change the way we do business. I mean, NASA devolved from a very much applied research organization as NACA mm. and at the beginning of NASA in 1958 to where we are now. We have done very little research in the last 30 years. And these large programs totally divorce and subordinate researchers and even engineers. Well, that leads me to my next question, because I think you made a, an important comment uh, based on a 2019 Aereo Time News Hub article where you asked that very same question, where someone asked you, what is the most significant development in space exploration? And you mentioned, uh, not lightly, that you were not doing, that we were not doing enough research in critical areas. And and, and is your thought, has that changed even a little or, or no? We, we are not doing research. You know, uh, when we had three very healthy research centers, we had significant budget doing applied research. It was not connected with any large human spaceflight program. Mm. And, and so the budgets look like the money's going for research, <laughs> but it's really not. OK. And so, for instance, we were leaders in hypersonics. That was my oh, wow. field. Right. So hypersonic structures, uh, we were leading the world in hypersonics because we had a very strong budget that was not connected with programs that the that the research centers could use they had discretion to use it appropriately to advance research in these in these areas right it was always focused it wasn't fundamental research we do not have that now and so what do you have right right now you're reading in the paper that we are f behind in mm. hypersonic weapons you just saw the russians That's launch right. a hypersonic weapon the chinese and the bad news is we're behind them, right? And their education system is such that they are putting tons of money into facilities and, and training students in this, in this area. And so we are just going to fall further and further behind. And, I, and these are critical technologies that we cannot afford to be behind. High-speed computing, cybersecurity— and hypersonics. Yeah, you're preaching to the choir. And this goes back to what we were commenting before at the beginning of the show about STEM education and, and making sure people are involved in that and mentorship. Um, and so we talked a lot uh, on this, on this uh, podcast about a lot of things that are important to you and to our listeners. But if you had to boil it down to our audience, what is the one thing you want our listeners to remember from this conversation between you and I. I want the world to really understand why STEM education is so important, right? Not for these 
next generation to be just concerned about how to become an entrepreneur and make a lot of money. We need deep thinkers. We need people that want to go further for their advanced degrees. And we have to uh, we have to create jobs in this country that fund applied and fundamental research in these key technology areas. We have to have jobs. We have to have universities that support these these um, these industries. And um, and I, I can't say more. Yeah. You know, I can't. That's that's the most important thing we have right now. We're just losing so many students in STEM. We are not going to be able to compete. This is the ideal time to do it. We saw this unbelievable resurgence in advanced degrees in education during the Apollo program, the shuttle program. We have another resurgence in space right now. And hopefully we could use that to attract more students into these fields. That's great. That's so important. And so I think we're almost out of time, Charlie, but I do have one more question for you. And normally I usually ask a canned question about what do you love about your job, but I kind of feel like given your background and your history and your career, uh, that question wouldn't be doing our listeners or you any justice. So I want to ask you of everything you've done in your, your storied career and your education, what has been the most proudest moment of your career? Wow. You know, I guess my proudest moment was actually being part of the return to flight crew with a tremendous responsibility, working with this amazing small team in, in our little space shuttle, connected with a much, much larger mm. team down on the ground, and working and training and pulling off an amazing, an amazing mission without any failures. Um, and, and doing it very successfully. That, to me, was was one of the most rewarding feelings uh, of accomplishment in my life. Well said, buddy. Well said. And, you know, and unfortunately, I, I think we're out of time, but Charlie, it's been an honor to have you on the show, buddy. And uh, I just want to, you know, heartfelt thank you for being here with us. My, my pleasure. And it was great connecting with you. Hopefully, we'll, you'll be a friend of Charlie, Barry, and we'll connect <laughs> many times more. Absolutely. And hopefully one day I'll be able to pronounce your name correctly. So, you know, again, thank you so much for being on the show. <laughs> My good friend, Charlie Camerata. That's right. Ignore, ignore the host. He's, uh, he's not too bright. And I think that's it for us. And just for our listeners, so you know, uh, hopefully you've enjoyed the podcast. Uh, and even if you didn't enjoy the podcast and just have ideas to make us better, you know, visit us at our feed on iTunes to rate, review, and subscribe. Or... If you're listening on Spotify, be sure to hit follow. We definitely want your feedback. And long story short, that's it for us and another episode of The Big Rethink. Until next time, I'm Barry Ross.